All right, thank you all for joining us again. Uh, this is the fourth panel of the day. I'm glad we have a good crowd for this. Uh, this one is going to focus on how we can modernize NAFTA. I'm Inu Manik. I'm a visiting scholar here at the Center for Trade Policy Studies, and I'm joined today with an excellent roster of speakers. I have Christine Bliss from the Coalition of Service Industries, uh, Amgad Shahapa from UPS, and David Weller from Google, who will each discuss issues that have become increasingly integral to the modern economy. So for instance, back when NAFTA was originally negotiated, we didn't have these little pocket-sized computers that we were carrying around all the time that can allow us to check our email, but then also to buy things at the touch of a screen within seconds. This led not only to increased flows of trade and information, but also to contentious battles over the scope of regulation in this area. Supply chains were also much shorter at the time NAFTA was negotiated and also more regionally concentrated than they are today. But as Richard Baldwin has noted in a recent book, the information communication technology revolution of the early 1990s drastically reduced the cost of moving ideas around the world. This allowed for the coordination of complex tasks across very great distances, prompting calls for new rules on trade facilitation. And finally, we really could not have imagined the importance that cross-border trade and services would play in our daily lives, as traditionally local services, such as education and medicine, can now be traded easily internationally as well. So these three issues, the digital economy, trade facilitation, and services, are the focus of our discussion today. It is clear from the earlier panels that we've heard uh, from that we can't really fault NAFTA entirely for the things that it did not address, because there's many things that it couldn't have imagined at the time. But the modernization debate today has two key components. First, what are the various ways in which NAFTA should be modernized? And in doing so, how do we balance out the competing interests? And how do we take into account the criticisms that have been leveled against the existing parts of NAFTA if we are to create a truly 21st century trade agreement? So I'm going to turn to our speakers to answer these questions now and start with Christine. Well, thanks, thanks very much for the introduction. And I want to thank the Cato Institute for the opportunity to participate um, in this seminar, and in particular, in this panel. And Inu's remarks remind me of just, and this may have been something that came up in a previous discussion, um, and, and that is, uh, and Professor Chernovitz was just remarking on the comments that he made earlier today about NAFTA's institutions. And so when we talk about modernizing the agreement, I think just as a starting point, even though we are engaged in the midst of a full-blown negotiation now, that in fact the NAFTA itself, as it was originally conceived um, and drafted, does contain a number of mechanisms that can provide for and have in fact provide for an updating of the agreement. So just um, to Inu's point that even though we, we have gone down the path of, of actual renegotiation, I think it is important to say that there are actually inherent mechanisms that don't require the launching of a negotiation. And I think we shouldn't forget about those, especially as we move into the future. Um, let me just say a, a quick word about the coalition of services industries that I represent. Um, just to give you a sense of the perspective uh, that we're coming from, 
So CSI represents a very broad spectrum of the US services industries. Everything from information communication technology services, um, companies like Google, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon, and others, those that are actually eBay that are themselves platform services providers, uh, but also uh, financial services, logistics, distribution, um, and in the logistics area in particular, OMGOD representing UPS um, is the perfect example, distribution services, professional services, media and entertainment. And what's very significant, as um, Inu mentioned, increasingly, even those services outside the ICT services space are largely becoming digitally enabled services. If they're not already, they're in the process of becoming so. Um, and, and so this is a huge development with respect to all the trade issues that we approach at, at CSI. But stepping back and looking at the NAFTA framework, it's without question that the framework has produced substantial benefits across all the services sectors that I've mentioned in terms of promoting cross-border trade and investment based on a very strong set of rules and market access commitments, which I will say, I think as all of you know, when they were negotiated were really pathbreaking. And they were negotiated at roughly the same time, a bit earlier, but roughly almost simultaneously with the General Agreement on Trade and Services rules in the WTO. And I think it's fair to say that from certainly the US perspective, the NAFTA rules are in many senses more comprehensive than what was achieved in the GATS negotiations, albeit a very different circumstance, small group of countries, a trilateral agreement, and not a multi-country agreement. Um, but nonetheless, in terms of the depth of the rules and the kinds of market access uh, uh, commitments that were achieved, very significant. So what are those rules? Cross-border services trade based on a negative list in contrast to the positive list used in the general agreement on trade and services. Um, and a key feature of that was the so-called ratchet, which locks in any liberalization of a measure that is not in conformity or was not in conformity with the rules under the agreement. The investment rules were also precedent setting in terms of guaranteeing non-discriminatory treatment um, for both goods and services and for providing both state-to-state -state and investor-state dispute settlement. The financial services chapter was also an important precedent, providing tailored rules, uh, securing non-discriminatory treatment for financial services, incorporating key provisions of the investment provisions. A telecom chapter was also a key element, securing basic access to telecom networks. A temporary entry chapter, and the path-breaking thing in particular about this chapter was the fact that it provided for mobility of a list of professional service suppliers, uh, a quite an extensive list, particularly relative to when we look at current other uh, FTAs that were negotiated post-NAFTA. Uh, so that was very precedent setting. A customs chapter that provided, that helped to promote customs harmonization across all three parties. 
um, and I'll also highlight a strong procurement chapter, which provided significant market access for U.S. service suppliers. So what has this NAFTA framework done for U.S. services? Well, first and foremost, the most tangible result, I would say, is that it has produced a bilateral trade surplus in services with both Canada and Mexico. In 2015, U.S. services exports to Canada and Mexico totaled $88 billion and supported almost 600,000 U.S. jobs. And these are well-paying jobs, by and large. A 2011 study found that wages in business services were more than 22% higher on average than wages for jobs in manufacturing. And even though that's a somewhat old statistic, we've looked at Bureau of Labor statistics more recently, um, particularly those, uh, some of those of you in the audience. Um, I'm thinking of Sherry in particular, who's worked with us in this, this area. Um, and more recent Bureau of Labor statistics bolster this conclusion as well in terms of professional services paying a higher average wage rate. And since 1999, the United States has doubled its bilateral trade surplus in services with Mexico and quadrupled this surplus with Canada. And the most recent data indicates that U.S. services exports to Canada totaled around $57 billion and produced a, about a $28 billion surplus. And similarly, with respect to Mexico, U.S. exports of services were about $31 billion, um, with a significant trade services surplus as well. It's also important to look at the investment aspect of services. U.S. foreign affiliates in Mexico generated about $43 billion in sales, primarily in non-bank holding companies, manufacturing, finance, and insurance, and $128 billion in sales in Canada, again, primarily in manufacturing, finance, and insurance. NAFTA's investment provisions have provided commercial certainty and a level playing field for U.S. service suppliers. And I want to highlight that foreign direct investment is particularly critical for services. And it's not a question of chasing lower wages or somehow a loss of U.S. jobs or offshoring. It's because fundamentally many, many services sectors need proximity to their customers and consumers. And that is what drives the need to establish locally. Another major factor is that many services industries are heavily regulated particularly in financial services, which also requires that they establish locally. So this investment, rather than subtracting from U.S. jobs, actually supports U.S. jobs and revenues that come back to the United States. Just to give an idea of the magnitude of this, U.S. foreign affiliates in Mexico generated roughly $43 billion in sales and about $128 billion sales in Canada. And as I say, these foreign affiliate operations are not only an important draw for U.S. services exports, but they also support existing jobs in the United States. And they've also promoted significant inbound investment in the United States from both Canada and Mexico. In light of our time, I won't go into the statistics, but suffice to say, the, um, the volume of investments is in the billions um, with respect to both Canada and Mexico. 
Another very critically important and beneficial area to US services are the NAFTA procurement provisions, which have provided secure market access for US services suppliers, particularly in financial services and the um, information technology sectors. And just to give you an idea, I'll mention it now, a US insurer is providing insurance to three out of four government employees in Mexico. Another US insurer is a primary supplier of property and casualty insurance to uh, the government as well. So there have been very significant opportunities which US companies have taken advantage of in the procurement space. And again, generating profit and money that comes back to the United States. And an important element that people may not realize is, well, fine, that's just about the profitability of those companies. But it's actually more complex than that, because particularly in the insurance sector, and particularly some of the bigger US insurance firms, actually provide are an important source of capital and financing for other industries, and, and in terms of the investments that they make and the financing that they provide. So the more they're able to capture market access, market access and to prosper, the more capital they have available within the United States to provide financing. So it's, it's not just that benefit in silo, but it's also a benefit that is being spread across other industries as well. In the area of customs and trade facilitation, NAFTA has approved customs procedures and helped harmonize standards and regulations. And these benefits have far-reaching impacts on the goods side, obviously, but also on the services side as well, and particularly for SMEs, which we have begun to recognize are more important, more and more important to our economy as a source of new jobs and the need to support their growth and expansion. And then finally, as, as Enu mentioned, NAFTA clearly has helped to integrate the services markets of Canada, Mexico, and the United States, facilitating the development of global value chains where the US holds a very significant role. And along the global value chains are inter, what are called intermediate services inputs, from insurance to transport, uh, transportation to design and engineering. And research has shown that over 60% of the global business services experts in value-added terms are indirect, and half of financial and insurance exports are indirect. And what this is an indication of is it means that they're participants in global value chains. So they may not be directly exporting for 60%, but they are definitely participants in that process and benefiting as a result. So looking at NAFTA after a couple of decades of experience, what areas should be modernized from the services perspective? First and foremost, NAFTA needs strong digital trade rules. And again, as, as you know, highlighted, the largest single development of importance to all services sectors is the advent of the internet and digital technologies. Virtually all services sectors are being transformed by digital technology, either because the service itself, as I was saying earlier, may be providing a platform to other services uh, or goods or agricultural suppliers, or because the service itself is becoming digitally enabled. 
And this digital revolution has deepened the ways that services historically have been supporting and promoting the competitiveness of the manufacturing and agriculture sectors. And this is a fact that, at least at CSI, we're trying to broaden understanding of. Because I think some, particularly in the academic community, have understood that there is, in fact, an extensive interrelationship between services in support of manufacturing production processes after sales and service, and similarly in agriculture. A tremendous portion of the value of an agricultural export, once it leaves the market, actually that value constitutes services, whether it's insurance, financing, distribution. But what the digital revolution has done is even uh, is, is magnified that effect. And, and so that the value of services inputs in manufacturing, for example, now ranges from 25 to 49% depending on the individual sector. And another very important point for us to keep in mind, um, the OECD um, is doing a study that's um, in the process of being finalized that has shown um, that roughly 60% of the value of labor in manufacturing is services. And I, I make those points because when we look at NAFTA and its importance and the significance of the benefits to services, it, we're actually talking about not just benefits to services, but we're also talking about the knock-on effects that occur in manufacturing and agriculture and sectors across the economy. NAFTA also needs updates in other areas that I mentioned and other chapters that were at the time in the early 90s pathbreaking, but nonetheless need updates, whether it's cross-border services, financial services, telecom, customs chapters. NAFTA also needs disciplines on state-owned entities. So now, um, if I can just give a, a general overview of specific services sector negotiating objectives, and I'll try and be more abbreviated um, so that I leave plenty of time for my colleagues, David and Amgad, to go more deeply into their uh, specific sectors and, and objectives. First on cross-border services, what we want to see is an ensured continued use of the negative list and of the ratchet for non-conforming measures. We also, as a general goal, want to see that services market access commitments meet or exceed those agreed to with Canada and Mexico in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, adopt, and or adopted by Canada and Mexico since NAFTA. We also want to ensure that there are no cultural carve-outs, including no discrimination or investment restrictions on online services. We also want to see an enhancement of the promotion of regulatory transparency and due process. And we would also like to see a broader use of a consultative mechanism on regulatory cooperation across services sectors. And I don't know if that may have been an area that might have been highlighted this morning when there was a discussion of existing NAFTA institutions and mechanisms, but that's definitely an area where we would like to see greater emphasis. On e-commerce and digital trade, we want to see clear and enforceable trade rules providing for free cross-border flow of data and prohibiting forced data localization, 
for all services sectors, including financial services. We want to see a strengthening of the U.S. role in global value chains as, it, as the U.S. is a key supplier of cross-border services. We want to also include a prohibition on governments from imposing custom duties on electronic transmissions. We also want to see um, a prohibition on imposing restrictions on security technologies used to safeguard against intrusions. Um, and I will highlight um, one of the things that we're very pleased about is that the U.S. has tabled a provision on cybersecurity, which we think is, is a real improvement and a step forward over what we were able to achieve in TPP. We also want to see a prohibition on parties requiring the transfer access to their technology, including software source code. Um, and we also want to ensure that foreign service suppliers can rely on global technology standards that are developed through voluntary and industry-led processes. Um, and last but not least, and David, I'm sure, will go into much greater detail, we want to see the inclusion of uh, a provision on intermediary liability safe harbor with respect to non-intellectual property. Um, and, uh, and that is an innovation uh, in terms of a proposal that the US made in the trade and services agreement negotiations that we want to see carried on um, in NAFTA and actually something uh, that we would reach agreement on. In telecommunications, we want to see updated provisions on communications services to ensure that market access and a pro-competitive and pro-investment environment continues. We believe that telecommunications market access should meet or exceed that agreed in TPP. And we hope that the U.S. is able to lock in reforms that have opened telecom markets since NAFTA was negotiated, particularly for example, binding Mexico's 2013 constitutional reforms in the telecom sector. In financial services, our number one priority is prohibiting forced localization measures in the financial services sector. And this is something that was not achieved in, T in uh, the TPP, but we want to achieve it in NAFTA. We also want to see that market access commitments prohibit the Im imposition of numerical restrictions and guarantee national treatment with respect to the cross-border delivery of electronic payment services and innovation that was achieved in TPP. And we want to go even further with respect to NAFTA. We would also like to see a strengthening of the NAFTA Financial Services um, Committee. And we would also like to see that coverage under investor state for financial services is broadened in terms of the scope of claims that can be brought to include national treatment and MFN claims. And we, we understand that this is going to be a real uphill climb in terms of the proposal that has been made by the administration that a country can opt in or opt out of ISDS. Um, and we also want to see that financial services is not carved out of the e-commerce objectives with respect to security technologies and software source code. Briefly on express delivery, a key area that we focus on is we want to ensure that U.S. express delivery service providers' existing level of market access in Canada and Mexico is preserved. We also want to see um, 
the addressing of inefficient and burdensome processes. In the customs area, we would like to see a streamlining and modernizing of customs process. Um, and in particular, we want to see substantial increases in Canada and Mexico's customs de minimis threshold. And um, an investment, let me just say quickly, we again want to see the preservation of the existing investment rules. Um, and we do not want to see a diminution of the dispute settlement provisions with respect to investor state or state-to-state -state dispute settlement. Government procurement, we want to see that existing benefits are preserved and that proposals made by the United States deny it, undermine that existing access. And finally, in the area of state-owned entities, we would like to see disciplines along the lines and perhaps even better than what was achieved in TPP. Let me stop there. Um, I'm happy to engage in that question and answer um, after each of the presentations. Thank you. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. For so late in the day, um, I'm sorry I only have slides and not a video and a little bit of music because um, I can imagine how you're um, feeling. Uh, Sit, sitting there, um, I know how I'm. I'm feeling sitting in Washington, listening to three months of NAFTA craziness. So, um, a, a day in a windowless room um, is not easy. Um, but thanks, thanks again so much for for having me. And I think um, in your in your introduction, you covered actually a lot of the kind of basic groundwork. Um, I wanted to kind of just give a little snapshot here. Um, of when NAFTA was signed uh, 25 years ago. These two pictures were taken about one week apart. Uh, NAFTA was signed a, a week before that picture. This was, um, you know, people were doing a little bit of uh, uh, basic programming at the time. Uh, that was a prodigy dial-up internet connection, which if you were way high tech, you might have had. Um, uh, needless to say, you know, the agreement that these three folks are, are signing, that, you know, the thousands of pages in that agreement, you're not going to find the word internet anywhere. Um, this is another picture I like to show as just sort of a little bit of contrast of what we're talking about. And it's a, you know, it's a, a little flip, but, um, you know, kind of the ports that we were talking about in the days of NAFTA were these kinds of ports. And that's how trade was done. And it's, you know, these are the ports where a lot of trade happens today. Um, and um, beyond being kind of a funny common term, I think it really is true. And, and I'll just spend a little bit of time kind of breaking down what some of the kinds of trade that we see on the internet today is happening. And I think a lot of it we recognize as trade, but a lot of it we don't recognize as trade. And I um, frequently spend time with small businesses, uh, musicians, creators, others who are doing lots of things on the internet um, and are exporters, but they, they've never used the word export until they've come to Washington and talked to me. And so 
um, and, and other people like me, and you know, men, many who are who are thinking about these issues. Um, you know, there's lots of data, and I'm not going to spend too much time on it. You, everyone knows that the internet is a really big part of of uh, international commerce today. But just this is kind of in the NAFTA context, one nice set of statistics that kind of puts uh, a point on it. And actually, just looking over the past five years, this is data from. McKinsey looking at um, uh, broadband bandwidth between uh, US, Mexico, and, and Canada. Um, and its growth in the past five years just between Mexico and the US is, is seven times. Um, and you can imagine if you kind of cast that out uh, further afield beginning uh, from, from the 1990s uh, today. Um, but the, the, the absolute flow of data, the, the, the volume of data flows um, between U.S., Canada, and Mexico, and of course more broadly internationally, um, is pretty monumental. McKinsey did a pretty big report on this a couple of years ago for those who are interested in kind of getting in, in, into the numbers. Um, you know, I think the other thing that's, uh, and again, you touched on this this a little a little bit earlier, you know, in your in your introduction. Um, uh, what what this kind of change of of the internet in our lives means for small business, and Chris, Christy mentioned it too, um, and you know it's it's maybe axiomatic, but right a small many many if not most small businesses were limited to their immediate geography up until about twenty years ago, um, for lots of different reasons, but um, uh, uh, communications, uh, capital. Um, were, were, were two, two key, key parts of that. Um, and that, of course, has radically changed. And if you look at platforms like eBay or, uh, or, or Etsy or Amazon Marketplace or businesses who are advertising on, on Google, these are small, small businesses who are um, reaching, you know, punching well beyond their weight. Um, and that's something we'll talk about in a little bit, that, that as we think about our new trade agreements, are they re really kind of written for that use case? Um, one kind of data point from the world of, of Google is, you know, when you, if, if you run a Google search, um, you see, you know, ads, uh, next paid, paid search ads that are next to the kind of natural, uh, natural search results. And Small businesses use those a lot to reach their audiences. Um, and the clicks on those ads from US small businesses, more than a quarter of them are from um, their potential customers outside of the United States, um, which I find a pretty amazing statistic. In the world of YouTube, um, which by the way, I don't know how many of you have, you know, how many of you are under 30 or have kids who are under 30, but you know, YouTube is much more than cat videos today, and there's a huge amount of entertainment and um, brand marketing and many, many other things happening on YouTube. 65% of the, uh, the viewership of US videos uploaded on YouTube are outside of the United States. Um, we don't think of those as exports, but they are. The majority of those revenues from uh, uh, ad revenues that, that are uh, collected as part of um, any viewership uh, of, of videos on YouTube goes to the creators, and those are, those are export revenues. They're probably not booked by the Department of Commerce as export revenues, and there's a whole separate data piece to this. A lot of the data that we're talking about here are sort of proxy data, and we could do better in, in getting even better data, but, but nonetheless, it kind of gives you an indication. 
Um, and then finally, just on the real aggregate basis, and this is a, a global number, I think this also comes from, from McKinsey looking at the contribution of um, uh, data flows to global GDP, um, a pretty, pretty whopping number. Um, so, you know, what does this mean for kind of our enterprise and, and for, for NAFTA and what you're, what you're talking about um, today? And I think it means kind of three core, uh, core things. Um, and I, I think the core point is that um, the, the internet has thrived as kind of an enabler of trade in a way kind of despite um, uh, the absence of trade rules. NAFTA and the GATS and other agreements do have some provisions that are relevant to it, but, but a, a lot of the issues that are cropping up are not explicitly dealt with it. Um, I think a big part of the reason that we haven't had those problems is governments simply haven't been focused on the internet economy as an area of sort of trade regulation and traditional um, kind of uh, import area of import protection. And I think that's changing. And it's, cha it's sort of, there are two things we're seeing. One is the rise of kind of more traditional trade tools, import substitution, other kinds of barriers, and sort of their corollary in the digital world. That's one thing. Um, and the second thing we're, we're seeing is simply the internet is a global medium for a lot of the advantages that I'm talking about to work. You need, you need a global reach. And so and when you have countries going in radically different directions on kind of core internet regulatory issues, that creates problems. You're not going to have, never going to have kind of full harmonization, but at least interoperability. And we're really, we're really starting to see very radically different directions um, in, in, uh, in internet regulation. So I think those, those two issues I view as kind of the core trade threats that are coming for this whole new universe of internet-enabled trade. And, and I, the question is sort of what do we do about that? Um, and I'm just going to highlight quickly kind of three core principles um, that, uh, that I think can help kind of stave that off and help preserve this kind of trade and help preserve kind of uh, the empowerment aspect of the internet for, for trade. Um, and the first is really sort of thinking about movement of an access to information as something that tr the trade system should be protecting in some way. And this is something that we should be encouraging. Um, you know, trade rules, the, you know, the GAD and the GATS are, are focused on movement of goods and movement of services. And there are some good creative arguments for how the GATS rules actually r relate to movement of information as well. But we haven't in a very direct manner in the internet, in kind of our trade rules said, this is something to be protected. And when governments impede access to information, movement of information, that's something that has trade effects. And we should think about those and think about um, disciplining that in, in some way. And so that, you know, whether it be issues related to simply transfer of information, access to information, forced local storage, and there are a whole slew of issues in that bucket. But that's kind of concept um, that's concept one. Um, concept two is really the notion of um, platform-enabled trade. And a lot of what, um, what I've been talking about um, and what the internet has done is, and I don't know, since I'm in the, uh, since I'm in the Hayek uh, auditorium, I, I, I'm sure I could use some good Hayek references here, but in, like an economic theory reference you could use here is sort of the concept of disintermediation. Um, and the notion that 
the internet is sort of taking away middlemen um, and allowing buyers and sellers, consumers and producers to connect much more directly with much less friction. Um, and to, to, to be able to kind of do that essentially without middlemen. Um, and our trading system in some ways encourages that, but the, there are a number of rules that you kind of have to have in place for that system to work. And kind of a fundamental one is, do you think about those platforms that are enabling the direct connections do you, are, are, you, are you kind of re-intermediating them and saying, we want you to be a gatekeeper for everything that happens here? For, for instance, all third-party speech. If you're on TripAdvisor or Etsy um, and you're a seller, there are, there are you know, millions of comments being posted on those sites every day. What you think of this seller, if you're at Airbnb, you know, was this, did, this, um, uh, did this person who provided a home provide good, uh, good service? And, you know, people get into disputes. They don't like what someone says about the, the home that's been offered or the good that was offered by the Etsy seller or whatever it may be. Um, and so rules that enable that, that kind of activity to happen and that kind of speech to happen without saying, hey, um, whatever the platform is that's standing in the middle, it's your obligation to proactively monitor all that speech which given the scale that all this happens becomes a very, very hard thing, um, especially for new entrants in, in the space. So that's kind of a second piece. Um, and, the, and the third piece um, I'll talk about, and we could talk more about this in, in the, in the Q&A if we have time, um, is really an innovation-oriented approach to copyright. Um, the, the, the digital economy and internet trade um, at its found, one of the core principles that has enabled it to work the way it does is a real innovation orientation to copyright and a notion that um, copyright should incentivize um, uh, new creativity and protect the legitimate rights of artists. Um, at the same time, it needs to promote um, the ongoing innovative use um, of, of material um, and recognize technological change. So to give um, uh, to give one basic example, kind of from the early years of these issues, right? The, this, the, the classic example was the, the Betamax, right? And that issue was litigated to the Supreme Court because many felt that, hey, this is a machine that you're having to make copies, um, uh, copies of material, and it can be used to conduct an infringement, but it can also be used for a lot of positive things. Anything in the digital economy requires making lots of copies of things. Um, and it's often, given the scenario and the scale that things are happening, you're, not, you're often not doing that in a, in a scale where you're getting the explicit, explicit authorization each time to make the temporary copy or whatever. Maybe this kind of gets technical quickly, but um, kind of a broader approach to copyright in, in, in trade. And I'll just give one um, quick example here before I, um, uh, before I wrap up. Um, and this has to do with how... Um, you know, a buzzword today is artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and data mining. Um, and industries from many, many different sectors are using these kinds of technologies to get great insights um, into whatever their particular field is, biomedicals. In this case, we're talking about translation. How do we learn translation? How is machine translation so good today? 
Um, it's because you have algorithms that are able to look at vast corpuses of data and existing translations of works, for instance, um, and not reproduce those translations, but learn from those translations and look at things like menus or the entire you know, translated copy of the works of Shakespeare in five different languages. Um, to do that, you need to make a copy of those existing copyrighted materials and machines learn from it. Again, they're not reproducing it, they're learning from it. So to enable that kind of innovation activity that's really at the heart of artificial intelligence, you need to have copyright rules that recognize, hey, this is something which isn't undermining the core economic value of the creator, but is creating some kind of new uh, economic value and, and is transformative in, in some way. And then in my last 30 seconds, um, just want to say we often, you know, we talk about how trade is bringing in many, uh, the internet is bringing many, many more people into trade. Um, and I think that also has some implications for the process of trade too. A lot more people are directly affected and participating in trade. And the internet actually also offers tools to facilitate some of that input. We've seen some of that drama in TPP and other agreements when you don't have public buy-in. Um, and I, I think thinking more broadly about kind of who are the stakeholders in the trade debate and, and innovative ways to involve them is, is another important piece of the puzzle. So I'll leave it there and thanks for your time. Thanks, David. Yep. Thanks, David. I find it ironic. I'm trying really hard to use this iPad and the guy from Google came up with a notepad and paper and I'm using the- Old school. So, um, so thank you for having me and thank you for allowing me to be part of the dialogue. Obviously, UPS and all our um, friends in the EDS business are very uh, vested in both services and in NAFTA. Uh, my role here was throughout the whole uh, day of panels was to kind of bring a little bit of practical realism to how it affects us, our customers, kind of metaphorically and, and figuratively but in reality how the rubber hits the road when it comes to goods movement. So we're a services company that obviously moves goods. Um, it's our 110 year anniversary this year, 110 years existence. Um, we started in the US obviously, but our first expansion, relevancy to this discussion, uh, was into Canada. Uh, over 40 years ago was our first international expansion and over uh, 25 years ago into Mexico. Uh, so. Based on our experience, uh, there's obviously no doubt that it's an integrated supply and value chain across the three countries, um, that goods move at a velocity across the borders. I would just tell you practically at a higher velocity on the northern partnership than on the southern partnership. We've got some issues in uh, the southern border that we're trying to fix that I'll tell you a little bit about. Um, but, you know, out of all our 210 markets that UPS operates in, so in 210 countries around the world, the relevancy of this modernization or renegotiation or whatever optics we're going to use, uh, Mexico and Canada are top 10 markets out of 210 countries for us. So for our customers, you know, we're not that movie where build it and they will come. Our customers took us to these markets. So the relevancy and the growth and the size that we are in these markets are a proxy to what's really happening in the real world after, I believe today is, or 
I'm going to a drinking party after this, a 70-year anniversary of GATT. So after 70 years, uh, this big U.S. company called UPS, top 10 markets, um, Canada and Mexico. So when we distill it down, we talk about jobs in the United States, trade, impact of jobs. So we went internally and asked, you know, let's, let's create some realism to this. Uh, how is trade affecting UPS? We grew up as a domestic company. Um, what does trade do to impact our business? And we, um, I don't know if it's still true, but for the longest time, UPS had the largest number of engineers in a company in the world that's a non-engineering company. I think I said that right. So we have a lot of engineers in our company, but we're not an engineering company. Uh, so we measure everything. And that usually is good throughout the year until it becomes time for pay increases. It doesn't work out well because your performance is right down to the Nats detail at the end of the year. So we measure everything. So we could tell you categorically that for every 22 packages that cross a border, we create or sustain a job in our business. So we have a direct line of sight to how many packages move across a border and therefore we lose, create, or sustain a job in UPS. Right now, as we speak today, about 3% of global GDP or 6% of US or North American GDP is moving through those little brown trucks that you see on the road. We know this, and it hasn't been said today, but 48 states uh, named Canada or Mexico as their number one export destination. Millions of jobs are dependent on that trade. Um, I heard at another session that geopolitics obviously is another underpinning of the NAFTA agreement. And the four best defenses for the United States are the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, Canada, and the United States. So where we're sitting today, besides the economic uh, impact that this agreement, renegotiation or modernization can have, is even larger consequences. So what's different today than uh, when we first moved to Canada and to the United States? I think many of you know, but I would just broad brush it as drones are now flying, cars are driving themselves, robots are building cars and other things. Um, we UPS are moving more plastic beads around the world than we've ever moved. Why are we moving plastic beads? Anybody guess? What's that? 3D printing, correct. So 3D printing, the advent of the disaggregation of uh, manufacturing. We've seen so much demand that we've put 3D printers now in a bunch of UPS stores. So all these Soho neighborhoods, small office, home offices can go and print their sample that they're trying to sell right in their neighborhood. We've stuck 3D printers at end of runways in our international airports around the world. We will print through a CAD drawing that you send us electronically through a platform. Your item, put it on our plane at the end of runway past midnight and get it to its destination by next morning. All this stuff never happened 10 years ago or even five years ago. So digitally enabled services um, are critical. Platform e-commerce is critical for us. And then the advent of the B2C market, which has totally changed our business from picking up from the manufacturer, going to a wholesaler distribution, a warehouse, a reseller, and then the consumer. We got these funky things that you just order that Christina talked about in your hand. 
and everybody now wants to see where their stuff is coming across the border. And if we're 30 seconds late, it's like Domino's Pizza, they want their monies back. Um, by the way, that is a myth that there's something called free shipping. There's nothing free. We're in the business, we have a high asset cost, and it's all baked in. So all the stuff that we talk about hits the bottom line of the consumer, given this new distribution pattern. So I would tell you, lastly, when Christina talked about uh, movement of uh, data across borders, data localization, um, depending on the day or the week or the month, uh, and you count our size of our air fleet, we're about the ninth largest airline in the world. So we need data to move across borders because our data and our assets move across borders. We need to track those packages. We need to keep the planes in the air. Data moves before, during, and after a shipment. Before, because we gotta get it to customs authorities in the 210 countries, so that when the packages get there, they're not held at the border. During, because customers wanna track everything. And after, because of claims, reconciliation, and payment of goods. So we've bundled these services over the last 100 years to enable us to be in the digital world as well as in the physical world. So listening throughout the day today, the last piece of what's changed, I would just characterize as, uh, who's the largest hotel chain in the world, depending on who you ask right now? Airbnb. Airbnb. They don't own a single hotel room. Who's the largest taxi business in the world? Uber, they don't own a single car. Who's the largest retailer in the world? Amazon, they own Whole Foods now, so I can't use that anymore, but that never happened five or 10 years ago, okay? So us here that are trying to influence policymakers, we have to tell the story, and these are the stories that we tell them, and it's always business is a leading indicator, and in most cases, policy is a lagging indicator. So our responsibility collectively is to figure out how to shoehorn the real world into the next policy directive. And that's what we're trying to do here with NAFTA. So under three pillars, what is it that we advise or recommend in regards to the modernization of NAFTA? Well, we think as we're doing this in the United States, we really need a blueprint or a long-term industrial policy. This flip-flopping back and forth of where we're going and what our comparative advantage is and what our value differentiator is, that needs to be baked into a strategy, and I, we're hoping we can help get it there based on this new real-world uh, framework that we live in. But three things. Um, you know, under the lingo of uh, the art of policy, market access is still an issue for us when it comes to Mexico. We still can't carry goods inside our vehicles that are over 30 kilos in Mexico. We have to farm them out to a local uh, freight carrier. So. Again, with the advent of B2C and B2C commerce, business-to-consumer commerce, things are more than 30 kilos. So it, it really mucks up distribution channels. So we'd like to move that up to an internationally recognized standard, which is 70 kilos. We also can't drive on federal highways in Mexico with our long trailers if it's over five tons loaded with packages. So again, it, it disintermediates or disaggregates our supply chains and value chains and mucks up the whole efficiency of our supply chains. At the border, there's a whole bunch of LTL, less than truckload inbound uh, 
charade that occurs where everything going from all over the supply chain in the United States gets unloaded, reloaded, unloaded, and reloaded again. It takes three trucks to cross the Mexico-US border versus Canada where you drive right through. And the reason for that is kind of complex, but it all rests in policy that we want to get uh, fixed in, in NAFTA. And it centers around joint liability of the goods, um, the use of brokers, who can broker at what border, how, how many brokers get a license. Um, so we're going to try to get that all cleared up. Um, so from market access, uh, LTL inbound into Mexico, it's a fight that we've had for the last uh, 20 some odd years through NAFTA. And this is our opportunity when we're asked by the administrations, what do you want to fix? That's number one. Um, when, when we moved into Canada, we had the longest market access fight in our history, in Canadian, uh, Canadian history, to be able to enter Canada as a US-based company. It, was, it, it took so long and cost us so much uh, in legal cost that we ended up getting a little frustrated. And to work around policy, we went and bought a bunch of New York taxi cabs in New York, painted them brown, took out the back seat, and started driving across Canada to deliver out of back of taxi cabs as a loophole to getting our licensing. So that was 20, I can't remember the year. I started driving for UPS 27 years ago in Toronto, and the, the vehicles were still kind of being rolled out, and then trucks were starting to come in. So we still are facing something not as extreme, but extreme enough that we need to get it fixed in Mexico. Second, second point, customs modernization. There's a little something called uh, the World Trade Organization Trade Facilitation Agreement that took a number of years to get agreement on. It's now being implemented across uh, the world. We just are saying take the principles within WTO TFA, implement them across the NAFTA regions, but be a little bit more ambitious because these countries are developed countries. We built together, it's integrated value and supply chains. Take those principles and take them the extra mile or kilometer in Canada's case and implement them in a more ambitious way. Digitalization of paper processes. We're still using paper. When you saw David's containers of those ocean uh, cargo vessel carrying things, it takes as much paper to move a cargo vessel container as it does a small package. The NAFTA standard could set a new world standard on digitizing all that paper and all that information because it didn't do it 25 years ago. So it's enshrined some of it in NAFTA and in uh, TPP that we're going to adopt in NAFTA hopefully, but take it again a little further because it's three countries that are progressive, that have single window opportunities and, uh, and digitization. The, uh, the de minimis uh, was mentioned in multiple panels, so I'm not going to repeat it, but it's obviously an important point for us in the North American space. And then lastly, the third pillar is security. Uh, any of you that travel, for example, uh, up to Canada, um, you can clear US customs in Toronto before you even get on the plane. So they clear you as a US citizen inbound or a US visitor inbound into the United States at Pearson Airport, right? So that that way you can fly to any airport in the United States. You don't have to go through a single clearance port where CBP will inspect you here. We're talking about the same principles applying to cargo now where you should pre-clear it 
by the destination country at origin. So in Mexico and in Canada, before the, sh the inbound goods come to this country, we should make sure they're safe and secure. And besides that, what it does is it stops clogging all the borders. Why does all that have activity have to happen at a destination port or at a, a physical border? So this is a, a, a logistical way of embedding efficiency. And the, the enabler of that is digitization and technology. Because in the old days, you had a lot of paper-based processes that were not transparent across the supply chain. I won't get into blockchain, but that's another whole opportunity, another layer on top of this digitization that could enable this even further. And then lastly, we believe uh, under this security protocol, you hear a lot of discussion here in the United States about opioids and the importation of drugs and the security uh, apparatus necessary for transparency of what's in the package. So um, as I, if you haven't felt it yet, but we're a really um, highly engineered company and we use a lot of information, uh, a lot of digital transfer of, uh, of, of information. We're asking that where SOEs exist, where state-owned enterprises exist, whether it's in Mexico or in Canada, that compete against us that the same principles apply to them that apply to us in cross-border data security. So if we're sending pre-arrival data into the United States before the wheels up in Canada or in Mexico, before we even depart those countries, we're sending CBP, everything that's on that truck or in that plane, so that they can go through and figure out the bad actors and the bad packages and nail it before it even comes into the country. Unfortunately, our competitors who are state-owned enterprises that are owned by those governments are not playing by the same rules. So we say in NAFTA, let's get that corrected once and for all. So I think I'll stop there and we'll take questions. Thank you. So before I turn it over to the audience, I just want to ask one question for each of you to respond to uh, that touches back onto the discussion we've had earlier in the day. Because we've seen that NAFTA has its fair share of critics uh, and calls to expand the deal have been met with opposition, not just from civil society, uh, but also from some businesses and government as well. And I'm wondering in terms of your specific issue areas that are sort of the modernization of it that should be less contentious, uh, is there some pushback? Do you feel that there are groups and, and how are they pushing back? But exactly what is the level of opposition you are getting to truly modernizing NAFTA? Well, let me just um, make a, a brief comment and then turn to my colleagues. Um, I think um, in general terms, we have not met with a lot of opposition to um, the long list of objectives that we have in terms of modernization that crosses, crosses all sectors. Um, we're certainly aware that um, there are some um, general concerns that have been raised with respect to um, the digital trade chapter um, from NGOs. And I think those, and I don't know that they're necessarily new arguments, but I think they have to do with concerns about protection of, of data. Um, and, you know, I think our view is in that regard is that certainly in TPP, um, and um, I think going forward in NAFTA, that there should be ample opportunity for provisions uh, respecting individual country privacy regimes. So 
I don't think in our minds they undercut existing protections. Um, and if they're particularly sensitive areas, for example, health data is traditionally one area where there may be particular concern. Um, but I think the, the rules that are, are being discussed leave certainly opportunity for sufficient protection and respect for domestic regulatory objectives in, in the privacy area. So um, I think that's, that's probably one area. Um, I will, I'll defer to my colleagues for, for other areas, but I, you know, I, I don't think by and large we have so far encountered a lot of opposition. Um, the other area I would say, and I think that this is historically the case with respect to previous trade negotiations, there have been some concerns raised with respect to investment protections, particularly investor state. Um, but I think that from our perspective, that the record is pretty clear um, that we don't see investor state as a threat to domestic regulatory regimes. If you look at the track record of disputes that have been brought, particularly disputes that have been brought against the United States, where there's a, a you know a strong winning record. Um, and we also see adjustments that have been made, for example, in the model bit review, which have been incorporated into what the U.S. is proposing, where we think that there is, is a, even more of a balance between domestic regulatory concerns um, and investor protections. So I think in my mind, those, those are two areas that I could highlight, but I would not say that there has been... Um, hardcore opposition otherwise. I will say, and maybe I would frame this a little differently, there are other aspects of what's being discussed which we are concerned about. Concerned about. I don't think that it's um, so much a criticism of, of what we are saying, for example, on procurement about the importance of preserving U.S. access um, of services suppliers in um, the Canadian and Mexican markets. I think it's more just a concern about what um, has been proposed by the U.S. in terms of, uh, for example, uh, potentially a new threshold um, with respect to procurement provisions or a cap um, on a one-for-one -one kind of situation for market access. That's concerning to us in the sense that it could undermine or lead Canada or Mexico to uh, perhaps withdraw or not agree to the procurement provisions. Sure. I, I suspect we'll run out of time, but on, on Christie's data point, happy to talk about that uh, later because I think that is a concern and I think there's there's some pretty, um, when one gets into the details, you kind of see that I think uh, there, there's a way through that thicket. Um, I guess the other issue that I'd um, highlight is in the area of, of IP and copyright, where I'd say there's been kind of the most churn in a sense. I think there is sometimes the, the public discussion uh, about it is a bit of a lagging indicator about, you know, how things actually operate in the real world. So if you look at the businesses, you know, right now, um, tech and digital services and content production are all very deeply intertwined. This isn't 15 years ago where it was, you know, where you had kind of two radically different business models. We're all working deeply 
together. And I think there's sometimes kind of a, a lagging perception um, that somehow, you know, the tech community doesn't s support strong copyright. Um, uh, we very much do. Copyright is, is, is important. And if our trade agreements are going to deal with those issues, it makes sense to include those kinds of provisions. I think our core perspective is that um, at, at the same time, it needs to really reflect the entirety of the U.S. copyright law, which has been um, core to how the U.S. Internet has operated and been successful for, for many, many different stakeholders. And we need to kind of reflect the entirety of those principles in our trade agreements, which really hasn't been the case. Um, in, in prior iterations, and the NAFTA update is, is an opportunity to, to do that. Uh, I'd say in our industry, um, it's not so much resistance, but it's an existential threat in regards to us deciding collectively, is the NAFTA territory a, competi a competitive block where we talk about all day we've been talking about building together value chains, you know, there's three places in the world automotive vehicles are built now, North America, Asia, and Europe. So whatever we do here now, are we going to hand those other two regions in the world a free ride? Or are we going to figure out a way how to compete together and build together and enhance what we have today? And there's a little bit of protectionist measures, but I think everybody's just gaming uh, to understand where the other country's going to go. But I would tell you that if if we don't resolve that issue, it doesn't matter those th three little pillars that I talked about. If the vessel is going to go down, um, nothing that we're all trying to vertically fight for in our industries is going to matter because all bets are off and, and it, the business will take the path of least resistance. Um, so I'm going to take some questions from the audience. I think I'll gather two right now. Um, so please wait for the microphone, uh, and then please state your name and affiliation, uh, and, and I'll call on you. Please, right here and uh, right over there. Thank you. Uh, thanks, a wonderful panel. And I have three questions, actually. One to Christine. Uh, since the administration is actually trying to go back on manufacturing, for example, why would Mexico and Canada agree to anything on modernization or services, which are obviously a strength of the US? Question to uh, David on, uh, I think, your second point on platforms. Do platforms really disintermediate or reintermediate? Does uh, Amazon? get rid of the gatekeepers publishers to become a new gatekeeper. Uh, and on the long-term strategy of uh, AMGAD, I hear one loud and clear from the administration. It's iron and steel. Thank you very much, Sherry Stevenson, uh, ICTSD Geneva. Really good panel. Christine, obviously, I'm going to ask you about services. Thanks for your comprehensive presentation. Um, I've been thinking a lot about NAFTA modernization and services as well. And um, I agree with everything you say, obviously. My only thought is, since NAFTA was so path-breaking when it um, first uh, was negotiated 23 years ago, and it really set the model around the world for what a trade agreement could do in the area of services. And it's been so successful. And we haven't really heard any controversial issues uh, uh, regarding its implementation amongst the three parties. 
Um, why can't it be even more forward-looking uh, in the NAFTA 2.0, since this seems to be maybe an area where we wouldn't have that much political pushback? Can we go a bit more forward? I didn't hear you talk about a couple of things that have been uh, one that have been successful, and maybe we could push the limit more, which would be expanding the list of professional service providers among the three countries, which have no quota limits attached to them now. It's kind of something that flies under the radar screen, but it's really, really important. Um, professional service providers that are on this list can go without numerical limits to uh, actually provide services in any of the three parties. Um, can we expand that list? I haven't heard it discussed. Uh, secondly, could we think of expanding our focus beyond the traditional business services, which obviously are important, and their CSI members, you know, finance, telecom, express delivery, etc. Could we also think of areas where the U.S. is also very competitive, health services, educational services? Could we do anything for these service sectors to integrate our regional markets in North America even further? Could we imagine... Um, having uh, committees established that would look at the possible recognition of the qualification of foreign health providers so they could provide you know, health services in, in markets of other members? Could we think of the portability of insurance possibilities where you know, large insurance companies, could um, health insurers could be given national treatment abroad? I know these are not easy, but would it be possible to at least start a dialogue on regulatory cooperation on these issues as part of the negotiations? Well, I'll start, and, and thank you for your question. Um, and let me start by saying, sure, there, there's, there's been an issue of, of will there be tension between the administration's clear interest in fostering the competitiveness of the manufacturing sector and the attention that will be paid to services, financial services, um, and uh, what we see is very interconnected digital trade and digitally enabled services. Um, the good news, I think, is that um, really from the start of the negotiations and the consultations that we um, have had, there has been um, strong support for tabling proposals, which we think are very effective, um, whether it be on cross-border services or telecom um, or digital trade, for that matter, um, or in the customs area and some of the areas that OMGOD highlighted uh, where we share a strong interest, whether it be raising the de minimis level, streamlining customs procedures. Um, so. I think in terms of, of what we've seen in, in terms and understand with respect to what has been tabled, um, there is um, support and the U.S. does seem to be pushing for beneficial provisions. So we take that as, as very good news and, um, and positive. Uh, and, and so I think in our minds there are areas of challenges and certainly as as I indicated, investment, I think, is one of them um, because certainly to services companies, investor state is an important area. And our hope is that um, perhaps people will step back and be reminded of what one of the original purposes of investor state was, and that was to, from the U.S. perspective, to really encourage the rule of law globally um, and that it was not um, 
narrowly aimed at being a, um, a risk eliminator for U.S. business. It really was in, in the initial um, instance to spread the rule of law. Two, there's been a huge body of law that's developed under investor straight that supports that rule of law and has propagated that rule of law in other countries. Um, and then thirdly, um, I would say that the other one of the other chief purposes was to try and depoliticize investment disputes and to take it out of the country to country context um, and and to make it more neutral. Um, so we hope um, that that's something that is um, brought back into the debate because I think it's been maybe not highlighted to the degree that it that it should be. Um, but back to your ultimate point. Um, what we're also doing and have been doing since the beginning of this administration is to emphasize the important role of services in manufacturing and promoting manufacturing. Um, so let me stop there. <coughs> yeah, just, just 10 seconds on, on, on the other part of your question, which is um, I think the Canadian and Mexican private sector and governments recognize the real importance of services and digital services in particular and the internet to their future competitiveness too. So I, I don't think it's sort of a zero-sum game of, oh, the U.S. has leading of these kinds of firms and therefore it's a defensive interest. Um, on your question to me, it's a great question. Um, I think it's a spectrum, um, right? I mean, absolute complete disintermediation means, you know, I, I'm not sure how that's, I, I don't think that's actually possible other than, you know, in the lemonade stand in your your square corner. But if you compare, you've mentioned Amazon, you know, the, the Amazon marketplace kind of, uh, or Etsy or eBay kind of business model, where any seller can go up on the platform and use its own tools to kind of drive attention to that and connect with sellers anywhere. And based on feedback that you're getting from reviews, build up your reputation versus you know, committing, uh, convincing, you know, the three chain department stores that had, you know, an international footprint 15 years ago to stock their goods. Um, that's a big, that's a big difference. Um, so, and in many of these platforms, indeed, the the, the buyer and the, the ultimate buyer and the ultimate seller are the ones contract, contracting directly. It's not, it's not making a purchase from someone who is then aggregating things together. So... On uh, long-term industrial policy, I'm, I'm not an economist, a lawyer, or any of that. I would, here's what I would tell you, that you know, between the 232 cases, between the shale gas, not NIMBY, not in my backyard, between everything that it's going to take to refire up the coal mining in the United States, what, and I've had this discussion with the administration, what transition strategy is there between now and then to become the world's superpower in whatever industrial policy we undertake because you can't start overnight and the other countries aren't going to just lie down. So, and again, this doesn't necessarily have much to do with just this NAFTA discussion. It has to do with an all-encompassing discussion. If the economy has transitioned to a services economy of 70% of U.S. GDP, then how do we leverage... Uh, intellectual property, patents, industrial policy, manufacturing 
to create the new new that's going to allow us to compete globally. And I think I'm not in enough rooms uh, where that discussion is taking place. So absent of that, it seems like there isn't a backbone for everything that we're talking about. And if there is, maybe somebody should just guide me to it and I'll attach all my stuff to that backbone. On the regulatory cooperation discussion, um, there is one going on, actually. I've been in the meetings with, between Canada and the United States. There's a separate track on harmonization, mutual recognition, reciprocity, and uh, vertical industri uh, industrial vertical uh, opportunities. The, it's going really slow because everybody has ADD and they're really focused on all this other stuff that's going on. And it, there's always traditionally been that slowness. I, I would just, we're trying to do this, all of us also at the WTO. So that's why I'm really optimistic that three countries are gonna be able to see their way through getting this done, not a, at the 164 country level. One of the negotiators said to me, Amgad, if you wanna go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, we have to go together. And that's 164 countries agreeing to everything. If we can't get these three countries to agree to stuff, to embed it amongst the 164 WTO countries, I think it's like our golden opportunity to get it right. And I would just tell you, David and I are part of GIF, a Global Innovation Forum, which is another group in D.C., and the stories that we see on platform e-commerce and the enablement, the small and uh, MISMEs, micro, small, medium-sized enterprises that are now multinationals because they can go onto a, a payment platform globally, on a goods platform globally. Uh, Facebook, through market segmentation, is placing ads for their goods in 110 countries. It's it's crazy how the business has changed and our policies are still over here and haven't recognized the, the change to, to the way business is done globally to enable these small and medium-sized enterprises. Great, thank you. Unfortunately, we are out of time uh, as the Mitchell might want to continue the Q&A, but we have to wrap it up. Um, I hope that you'll join us uh, for the rest of the day and ask more questions over coffee, which will be served outside and some water and refreshments. Uh, just a reminder, we have two more breakout sessions that follow this uh, at 4.05. We'll have the dispute settlement session here in the auditorium, and we'll have the shadow of NAFTA uh, breakout session downstairs one floor in the policy center. I really hope you all can join us for that and the cocktail reception that follows afterwards to continue uh, our discussion. So so please join me in thanking our speakers today. Thank you.